September 1st, 2011. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop. We are the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Um, today we're kicking off a new uh, series with David McCormick. He's the Doris McConnell Duber Professor of Neurobiology at the Kavli Institute for Neuroscience at Yale School of Medicine. David is a cellular neurophysiologist and modeler. He's worked on many classical questions in neuroscience. He wrote the book on Thalamus, and I encourage you to hit PubMed hard if you really need this introduction. So, um, hi, David. Hello. And around the room, we've got Charlie Wilson. Hello. We've got uh, graduate student Suman Song. Hi. Hi, you're new to us. We've got Joe Beatty, or Beatty, sorry. Beatty? Yes, Beatty. I want to get that right. He's a postdoc here at the university. We've got Fidel Santa Maria. Hi, how are you? We know Fidel, and we know Todd Troyer. Hello. And I'm, I'm your host, Salma Karashi. Uh, David, your, bro your work has covered a broad range of scales and preparations, but one common strain that runs through it all is working out mechanisms for flexibility and in information coding and transmission. So I thought we might start by having you frame up some of your thoughts on how flexibility and efficiency are, are built into the brain and scale both within and across neurons and networks for our listeners. Sure. Um, well, the interesting and um, important aspect of us as humans is that we have a flexible behavior that's able to integrate and learn over time. So we are not stuck to uh, fixed action patterns. We're able to uh, learn from our experience. And, and importantly, and somewhat to our, our uh, demise, we are able to see the future. And we're able to uh, project into the future various scenarios. So our behavior is a uh, is a is a uh, moving along a projection a timeline or trajectory of, of the past flowing into the present into the future uh, what we've retained from the past where we are right now where we perceive we are and what, what our goals are and uh, I'm very interested in how the nervous system represents that kind of information on a, on a uh, network, and especially on a cellular level, since I do things on a cellular level. Um, most people think of this as, as a uh, as representation in, in fixed connectivity, um, what wires to what, uh, what strength synapses have, um, how, how the uh, information coming in impends upon this kind of anatomy, and uh, then bubbles through it and comes out with an output. But um, if you go a little deeper into that, you realize that that fixed connectivity only provides the opportunities. It doesn't provide the answers. And the interaction of this uh, anatomical connectivity with the state of activity, activity in the network, uh, provides a flexibility that gives rise to the ability to have a Decisions that can go one way or another, or behaviors that go one way or there, depending on the on the context that's going on at the time. And that's what we've really been interested in working on lately. So, uh, can I say something about that? So, uh, a lot of what you've worked on in the cortex, and also to some extent in the thalamus too, has to do with uh, sort of autonomously generated network activity. Maybe neurons that wouldn't fire if they were isolated, but in the network because of positive feedback or something can uh, can sustain activity for a long time or for a short time. or uh, And that stuff, that autonomous activity, ends up being kind of structured. It has some structure in time. And so you've studied 
a bunch of different structures like that. The thalamus has one set and the cortex has a couple. And what do you think, uh, you know, we see those when the brain is doing its real job, when it isn't trying to be flexible and everything and solve problems. That's some kind of, I don't know, carrier, of carrier wave for information or something. How do you, what do you think happens to all that structure how yeah. does it play into that calculation in the brain? Yeah, this, this raises a very interesting issue because uh, the spontaneous activity referring to, like, let's say, spontaneous activity during sleep, you know, the original researchers that recorded from sleeping animals are quite surprised to find how active the brain was uh, in a state. I'm talking about non-REM sleep, the slow-wave sleep, where your, your cognitive abilities are dramatically reduced. So why should the brain have so much activity? During sleep, and what and what does that structured activity do during waking? Where does it go? Does it does it influence waking state? There's there's two schools of thoughts about this, and I really don't have the answer in that. But one is that it's the uh, the structured activity of sleep is an epiphenomenon, if you will, uh, a, a consequence of the of the way the brain is built. And so you imagine, for example, that uh, the way that the thalamic neurons are connected with each other and the way that they, they have intrinsic currents that are useful for waking behavior is such that when you go to sleep, it happens to generate spindle waves. And spindle waves are innocuous and not really uh, bothersome to the brain, so they're just tolerated. You know? Same thing with slow oscillations, which occur in the cerebral cortex. Uh, the cortex needs to be a connectivity machine and allow for you to have this flexible behavior. It needs to have a variable gain so that it can be a connectivity, a functional connectivity machine. So that means that the neurons need to be able to influence each other to direct information flow. And uh, they need to be able to have a very wide uh, field of influence, meaning they, you know, each cell gets 10,000 inputs and can influence 10,000 other cells, so on. Uh, that connections and that uh, dependence on other neurons to fire uh, leads you to the potentially leads you to the state where if you decrease the excitability of the of the uh, cortex, it starts generating oscillations. You know, just because you have all those neurons connected, and and uh, this is what a circuit's going to do. If you make computer models of lots of cells that are connected and in, in which there's balanced excitation inhibition, they tend to generate slow oscillations. If you take a, a culture of neurons where you dissociate all the neurons and let it regrow back, it'll generate slow oscillations. If you take a slice of the cortex, it'll generate slow oscillations. These are oscillations that normally occur during slow-wave sleep. So from one view, you could say that uh, these things are just natural phenomena that occur from the properties, the basic properties of the cells and networks that are used for waking. Now, I, th th this actually gets into a, a, a almost philosophical question, but it's a very much a biological one, too. What's the purpose of sleep? Yeah. And we don't know the answer to that, and it probably has many, many purposes. Because imagine over, over the course of evolution, uh, you have periods of activity and periods of inactivity. You know, all, even single cells have periods of activity and periods of inactivity. And as you get more and more complicated in, in, your, in, in the multicellular organisms, you could imagine that you'd say, okay, I'm going to segregate those in a, in a beneficial way. Like, I'm, I'm particularly good at behaving during the day, so I'll be awake during the day. And I'm not too good at, at night. I'll, I'll reserve my resources. That's one. Another is that 
you say, well, I have, if I was awake all the time, it would take a lot of energy. And I'm in, a, I'm not in an environment that doesn't have, I can't, doesn't provide me with enough energy to do that. So I have to, you know, it'd be good for me to segregate my my rest periods into the period where I'm not so well tuned, like at night. All right. And then once you start doing that, the the whole body and the brain could figure out and say, you know, it's better for me to do certain things at night and certain things during the day. So over the course of evolution, you could have the brain and the body and everything else just segregating into um, sleep and waking, and whereas sleep is used for uh, very different things. Now, what could some of those things be? Well, there's really a lot of just a speculation, but part of it may be, you know, a reorganization of synaptic weights or activity in the brain to, uh, to retune things. You have to forget things that are worthless, and you have to remember things that are important. So you could uh, retune the synaptic weights uh, in the network or retune the excitability of the neurons in the network or, or various other things to allow you to divide between what's important and what's not important over, over the course of sleep. And uh, spontaneous activity can help you, actually help you do that because neurons need spontaneous activity. They need ion flux across their membranes to do a lot of biochemical pathways to, to keep active. Um, biochemically as well as electrically. They need the signaling to kind of wash through the brain um, in order to uh, get a nearest neighbor signal, for example, um, who's connected to who and who is related to who and so on. So I actually think of spontaneous rhythms as being used. They're there because of the way the brain is built, but they may be potentially used during sleep as a way for the brain to kind of uh, forget the bad and remember the good. So can we uh, can we use them if if they are uh, sort of an indelible part of the way the brain is built? Then that those mechanisms must also be acting in waking. And so if we see the thalamus has some kind of resonance. Like yeah. a spindle frequency. Yeah. And that resonance doesn't just disappear when you wake up, or does it? Can the can the brain erase the, those kinds of dynamics from the circuit and install yeah. a new set of dynamics? Yeah, that's a very interesting uh, point because uh, you don't you don't experience spindle waves. You don't see a spindle wave when it occurs. It doesn't give rise to conscious perception. I assume because it doesn't naturally occur to to real visual stimuli, for example. Um, and so, similarly with uh, slow oscillations, um, the, the interesting thing about the transition from sleep to waking is that the brain now takes the same neurons, the same circuit, the same connections, and puts it in a different mode of operation that it's, has a fundamental difference in that the cells now discharge in a way that's dictated by uh, a small number of other cells that connect to it, as opposed to during sleep where they're all kind of marching in order. They all kind of rhythmically discharging together. When you wake up, that would be bad. That would be non-perception. Okay, you'd be as if you're still asleep. And maybe, in fact, that's why it's sometimes hard to wake up in the morning. You're still having these slow rhythms appearing once in a while. Um, so when you wake up, you want to get to a state where the neurons fire in relationship to the small groups of other cells that are discharging and that they're related to at that moment in time. And then the next moment they're, they're firing because another group of cells they're related to is firing and, 
and so on and so on. And then they stop firing because nobody's telling them to fire and so on. Like that, they're very flexible, right? And, uh, you know, a, a, a dramatic breakdown of that is an epileptic seizure where everything fires all at once and then you lose consciousness because the brain activity in the brain of uh, that's not associated with conscious perception is like a seizure or slowly sleep is doesn't give rise to conscious perception it gives rise to unconsciousness it busies the brain with activity so you can't do you can't function properly yeah I find them as two different states and now I put it as a dichotomy but it's not you know this is a problem we have in neuroscience we need to define better the states of the animal or states of the person and we need to find better the states of the brain and correlate them and and, and and look for cause and effect between the two you know so right now we have uh, active waking and quiet waking in, in mice for example and this is really crude right and so uh, if you record from the cortex you see well sometimes there's Lots of this type of rhythm and lots of that type of rhythm. There's lots of delta waves or alpha waves or gamma waves or so on. Those are all telling us something about the state of the of the cortex, and it probably correlates well with the state of the animal. And I, I feel like we need to to look at that much more carefully. Yeah. So as as people do more uh, in vivo recordings, is that happening more? I mean, it seemed like a yeah a, a yeah. crime of history that they had these different cultures that. People were either record, recording units or they record these yeah. things and they wouldn't talk to each other and yeah. these crazy kinds of things, right? Yeah, there 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 have been several uh, historical anomalies in the way that science was done. It's uh, it's getting it's much better now. I, I feel like you know we're learning our lesson. You know, for a while there were people that would record field potentials, but that was it. And people record single units, not only single units, not fields at the same time, and multi-units where you wouldn't record that. All those, all those different techniques are, give you different kinds of information. And you can overlap them and get a bigger picture, you know? And and so, and then people that were doing, uh, in, a, in an effort to uh, get a very precise experiment, they would control the behavior to an absurd degree where, where the animal is only, you know, is head fixed and, and uh, only allowed to do a very simple task that had a lot of control over. And so, what is the state of the animal? You couldn't really tell. You know, this is a problem we're having right now with studying mice. Mice are are very different than people. They 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 don't have consolidated eight hours of sleep and and uh, you know sixteen hours of waking. They 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 flip in and out of uh, sleep and waking periods rather quickly. And, but is uh, it sorry? Yeah. But um, it seems that it, like the little I know about the history of sleep is yeah. that our cycles are relatively modern. Like the cycle of eight hours, sixteen hours, is after the Middle Ages, and before that, people would um, uh, work at night and sleep at uh, noon, like siesta, right? And so they wouldn't have an eight-hour period of sleep, and uh, you can see still you could see that in in some uh, tribes, like in New Guinea, uh, uh, and in some isolated tribes, they they don't sleep all night. So if the mice could organize their sleep... No, I have to say that, uh, that, that uh, we're, I, 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 I'm almost sure that we are different than mice, but, but, uh, but uh, the eight-hour, 16-hour the, the eight pattern sleep is, is a relatively modern behavior, and that's probably because of the origin of the, of the clock. 
right? But I think but, but we're, we're much more power. consolidated, even if it wasn't fully consolidated. We're much sure. more consolidated. And, it, and it's much more, it is very strongly dictated by, you know, I mean, before before electricity or before candles or something, I mean, it was dark. You had to, it was hard to be functional at night, right, for us. And so we had to put most of our sleep at night, right. that's for sure. So, and so whereas, but, the, but the, I was trying to get to a practical issue right now, which is if you, if you take a mouse, so... We have a lot of power with microscopic techniques, for example, with, with the two photon microscopes or uh, with the optogenetics uh, tools and those, those, well, not the optogenetics, but the, the, the two photon microscopes, for especially, or any type of microscopic technique, is best done in a head fixed mouse. You know? So you put, the, you put the mouse in the microscope and you head fixate them, and immediately they go into some kind of state that's neither waking, neither sleeping. You know? They, they, well, they actually do kind of fall asleep sometimes, but you don't know because they don't change their behavior, and they sleep perfectly well with their eyes open, you know. And so when they're just sitting there and their eyes open, they can be, you know, have large slow waves in their cortex, all right? right. And, and so some people, initially when this was found, people said, well, look, slow waves is natural during waking. And to me, I'm saying, well, how do you know that the animal's really awake? Yeah. So this, I'm saying that's kind of some kind of intermediate state that's maybe, maybe uh, or probably does naturally occur in a mouse. I'm not exactly sure when, when they're just sitting still and not doing much, maybe. But uh, in, in, our, in our experimental techniques, if we just put the animal in there and we want to study the state of the cortex and what's going on and how it responds and stuff, and your, your animal's in a, such a bizarre state, you have to take that into account. I think... I think Unfortunately, what's going to require is we, we train our animals like you train monkeys. We train our mice to detect stimuli and respond and be actively engaged. And that'll keep them awake. That'll keep them engaged. You know? mm-hmm. and that, that requires a lot of work. Perhaps the virtual reality uh, yeah. uh, world they can work around in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So there's, you know, there's uh, running on a ball so they can rock around in a virtual reality world. Although the, uh, we, we've actually, in my lab, we, we do it on a one-dimensional ball, and they find that much better, as opposed to a real ball that can slip in two, two directions, because mm-hmm. they're kind of all flopping right. all around all the time. In one dimension, they just run, like on a, on a cage, it's a, on the outside of one another. Mm-hmm. You know, they're happy doing that. Yeah. So during, the, 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 during slow-wave sleep and other kinds of autonomous yeah. activity, there's a... I mean, even the word slow wave sleep, it seems that the frequency content of that stuff is low. Mm-hmm. And that in awake state, certainly true in the cortex, but it's also true other places, in the wake state, the frequency content, the spectrum of activity becomes really broad and includes really high frequency things. Right. And, um, and there's a, a temptation then for us, or an invitation yeah. for us, yeah. to think that extremely fine time scale differences yeah. in action potentials might carry a lot of information whereas in sleep they don't seem to the cells speed up and slow down according to these slow yeah. oscillations so exactly uh, you know I mean you're a visual system yeah. cortex physiologist so I yeah. can ask you this question in the visual system in the cortex it's traditionally been thought that we don't worry about that kind of thing we give the moving grading, we measure the rate, yeah. and that's the story. Uh, no. Do you think that's... 
Not no, I mean, you know, rate, rate, rate is clearly uh, important, you know. Uh, but timing is clearly important, too. It's, as a biophysicist, you think about it and say, you know, you have uh, temporal summation and you have spatial summation in the neuron, and they both ha have to operate in order for the cell to fire. For a cell to fire, synapses have to come in within a certain time frame to get the cell up to firing threshold to, to you know, to get it there. And uh, that that temporal integration window is, 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 is critical to how the cell cell behaves. There's no way around it. And uh, so, if you're if you're allowing your incoming spikes to kind of just run sloppy in time, going all over the place, then uh, the rate that you fire is going to be very different than if you have them precisely coordinated. Yeah. Oh. And so, you know, that that's just one example. It's just timing is really is is really important. Now, you mentioned visual experiments, but. If you give an, an animal a, a very simple stimulus like a sine wave grating, yeah, you don't you you can encode that uh, to some degree with uh, to a, with spike rate that goes up and down with the sine wave, for example. Um, but if you give it a natural scene, it's not a sine wave. It has a one over f one over f squared distribution of frequencies. There's a lot of low frequencies, but a lot of high frequencies. There's a middle frequencies and there's all these high temporal correlate high spatial and temporal correlations in that natural scene and that's what our brain is tuned to do you know we don't look for sine waves we look for for the structure of natural scenes and and that uh, you know requires much more than I, I believe much more than just a rate code yeah. so can can we sorry to, to be hogging this but can, can we be uh, looking for um, you know a Visual system model version two that's arising out of the natural scene uh, experimental world that's going to give us, uh, you know, a new a new way of thinking about visual cells, uh, new typology of visual cells, a new image of yeah. Cells. Well, if people are there. People are are going there. It's difficult because you have these nonlinear interactions, and nonlinear interactions across circuits are are very hard to. Uh, to deal with, they're hard to deal with uh, experimentally, and they're hard to think about, you know, because uh, for you 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 take a simple cell. A simple cell is kind of linear, and and it's okay. I understand. You can understand how it gets its receptive field properties from the, uh, uh, you know, from the, from its components. But uh, even if even if even if you take a simple cell and then you show it a natural scene, you say, "I know everything about this simple cell. I know its frequency tuning. I know its spatial tuning. I know its contrast response function curve, and so on." Then you show it a natural scene. You only be able to predict maybe half or three fourths of the spikes that it generates. Yeah? Yes. There's a there's a lot of spikes that are generated. That you don't understand where they come from, and then say, so, "Okay, well, there's there's a big component I don't understand. I know it has to do with the the surround. I can show that, and so on." And I know it has to do with maybe so spectral frequency components of the scene and so on and the correlations, but after that, it's really hard to to go because it's nonlinear. It's highly, you know, it's hard to break it into components, you know. And that's just simple cells, and that's a small part of those. Those are the simplest cells in the visual cortex. And then you, I mean, as soon as you get past that, everything's nonlinear. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's a it's a it's a daunting task. Kind so of you're saying answer. yes, except we need some. Conceptual tool that we don't have yet. Um, so we just need to work with the tools that we do have a little longer. 
Yeah, I, I think we need both, and and uh, you know, if you were if you were walking in, if you were an engineer, and you walked into neuroscience group, and you didn't know that the status of neuroscience, you didn't know anything about it, and and uh, and you were given the task of figuring out, telling someone how to or learning how the brain works. The first thing you'd want to know is the wiring diagram. You'd say, "Give me the schematic." Okay. Well, we say, well, we don't know the schematic, you know. And they say, well, give me what? What does each part do? You know, well, we could tell you a little bit about the parts, you know. And then they say, well, you, okay, so you don't know much about the parts, and you don't know how they're wired together exactly, and you don't even know what the goal is. And it's kind of starts seeming kind of hopeless. <laughs> and and uh, so I, I feel a little bit like that. That. Uh, there's there's fundamental things that we can learn about the nervous system. There's fundamental things we can learn about the cortex, but there, we're we're pushing up against the wall here of how far we can we can actually go without knowing that schematic diagram in detail, without knowing all all the parts and everything in dynamic in real time, you know. And uh, that I think this is one of them actually. But we could learn some fundamental features of it, how you know uh, principles. Of course, we can yeah. know the schematic uh, for the. And and we're trying. Yeah, but you need to know it at the level like uh, you know this cell uh, connects to ten thousand other cells. What exactly? What? Who are those ten thousand other cells exactly? And who do they connect to? And who? Do, it's unbelievable amount of knowledge you would need, right? You you can tell me well the thalamus projects to layer four and layer. That's 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 kind of you know like saying that the you know this freeway connects that city and this city and I, but I want to understand how decisions are made in the society you know what I mean yeah. it's, it's very crude right? so how do you see the road progressing from one quest one, from one set of questions to the other so we have to end on a positive note it's a requirement <laughs> <laughs> I know but I'm thinking this is going to take a while <laughs> a long silence 10 minutes of silence <laughs> well uh, first of all I, I, I wanted to I, I did say something positive and that is we can understand the principles some of the principles you know what I mean we've made a lot of progress in neuroscience towards understanding uh, things like sleep rhythms uh, arousal these are things I'm familiar with uh, you know first order vision uh, epileptic seizures uh, you know Parkinson's disease there's so many things we've made a lot of progress in understanding the, the basic, the fundamental issues and, and the fundamental mechanisms of um, where we, I feel, is, a, is, a, is the most difficult issues that we could address are those that require an understanding of the details of the circuit and, and, and how it works in real time. So if you're asking me, you know, how, how is it that I uh, am able to... Uh, see uh, a scene of uh, a Dalmatian dog against black and white background and, and then integrate that information together of that of the all the parts of the visual scene so that I see the dog and I hear the dog and I see him walking and and you know I, I know that that's you know my dog and uh, this is a such a high level of, of, of detail that uh, I'm not sure how long it's going to take us before we really can say we understand that, you know. We get some ideas about it, but it's going to be a while. <laughs> so the three components that you mentioned, one of them was, the last one that you mentioned was knowing what the circuit's supposed to do. 
Yeah. It's true if you're an engineer, you're at a disadvantage if all you have is the schematic, even if you have the correct right. schematic and you know right. the, um, the equations that go with each of the components. Yeah. Still, it's very helpful in reverse engineering something to know what right. the thing is supposed to do. Right. So in, in a lot of ways, we know a lot about what the thing is supposed to do. We experience it every day. In fact, you, you can yeah. easily state what you think is a hard problem that without any fear that it is that that you're wrong and that the nervous system doesn't do it because you know the nervous system does it, you can easily test that on yourself. Yeah. So don't we we know a lot about what it does. Um, especially it seems like in, in vision is where we commonly tell our students at least in the visual system, we can control the stimuli, we know what the function of the visual yeah. system is. So why be uh, pessimistic about that. There, of course, if I if I work on the basal ganglia, I'm at a disadvantage in what it does. But if I work on the visual cortex, I'm not so much. Yeah. Um, so we know. I would say that uh, we have a uh, high level and a uh, knowledge of what it does. It analyzes patterns of action potentials coming in from the retina and reconstructs a three-dimensional world. Um, and we have a intermediate level. We know that there are cortical areas, and this one's especially good at doing color, and this one's especially good at doing motion, and, and so on. But where it starts getting problematic is, and we have a cellular level, understanding, well, the cells behave like this and like that, and this vast intermediate zone is where we have a problem, I feel, is that because uh, w what exactly is it that the one area is trying to tell another? And even that statement right there is problematic because the visual cortical area is all highly interconnected in a feed-forward and feedback pathway. And this reciprocal interconnectivity is is something that uh, we haven't really grappled yet in the brain and, and the visual system. What is it, how information is coming in, how is it coping with the information that's already there, and how is it working with the top-down expectations or, or searches or attentional mechanisms um, that allow us to, to behave and perceive? You know, there's, there's a... There's a huge uh, range of... Let, let me give you a very concrete example. I used to study the thalamus. And we, we could study the uh, retinal inputs to, to the lateral geniculate nucleus. We studied the intrinsic membrane properties of the thalamic relay cells. We studied the interneurons. We studied the thalamic reticular neurons. We knew well how they're all connected together and how they interact. And we could explain some things like spindle waves and and uh, receptive field properties and so on. But half the synapses come from the cortex. Okay, kind of like your situation in the striatum. Yeah. It's bombarded by layer six. All right. So, well, to understand the thalamus, I need to understand layer six of the cortex. You know, there's almost, there's there's very little research on layer six of the cortex, okay? 
So to understand this fundamental thing that's only one synapse away from the retina, I need to understand the layer six. To understand layer six, I need to understand layer four, layer five, layer two, three, layer one, and that's only that column. Then they're all connected horizontally with each other. So to understand that column, I need to understand how they interact all this way. Oh, to understand this area, V1, I need to understand V2 and V4 and MT, and then I got all the prefrontal cortex, and it's interacting with the hippocampus, and that's going into the cotyde, and it's going in the brainstem. I've realized, you know, to understand the LDN, I need to understand the brain. You know? Yeah. That's what's, that's the kind of problem I'm talking about. It's like, yeah. And I don't know, what is layer six trying to tell LDN, you know? I don't know. <laughs> that's yeah, a, that's, that's the, the problem. problem with the connectedness of things. The connectedness of things. Yeah. Exactly. I didn't want to be in on a bad note. You guys are you try, keep trying to get such me a good. <laughs> There's so many interesting questions out there. That's true. Right. right. That's why exactly. You know, that's why there's more than one of us. There people out there. Well, I think one of the, the things that we could do to try to help this is to not focus quite as much as a group as neuroscientists. If people would find a piece, a layer of the cortex that nobody else is working on, or a part of the network that other people aren't working on, it would sort of help because we have intense knowledge about some little tiny piece. Uh, like in the cortex, yeah. we've learned an awful lot about layer five pyramidal cells and motor cortex, and about layer four yeah. neurons in the in the visual cortex, and we know almost nothing about layer six. Yeah. It wasn't just what kind of, everybody wants to go off and study exactly the same thing. It's good because it, we learned that thing well, but it, we leave the huge gaps in between. Can I, can yeah. I plug my, yeah. my field in? Sure. I think there's a lot to be learned from the cerebellum in this case because we don't know exactly what it does, but people have concentrated on how it does it. Right, the input and output is is easier compared to to it has been known for a long time and it hasn't changed uh, dramatically in more than a hundred years. It's uh, conserved throughout, it, the and it's conserved and it's conserved through the uh, through the sensory system of of your choosing. Right, so if you map the cerebellum through uh, sensory um, input or or motor. Uh, basically, it will have the same fundamental uh, properties. And, and um, I think now there's a clear idea of how information flows and what is the role of the different neurons. We don't know what it does, right? And, and what the information is. What is the information we don't know? And, and I mean, uh, there's a problem throughout uh, neuroscience. We, we, we catalog things in firing rates, and then we say, well, there's information here, and the, the, we su suspect that there's a lot, but we um, don't exactly know what the code is. And, and, and probably we, don't, we, we probably don't need to start with what, it, what is the purpose of this part of the brain, right? If we could understand, I mean, I guess that's the conceptual advantage of, of the, the columnar organization of the brain, if you want to believe that, right? Like, information goes from this to two, three, four, five, and then it comes out to six, right? It, that might be true or not if for, for the entire cortex, but it's, it's, it's helpful in trying to uh, just, just map it to, to the entire cortex. So how, how about being able to generalize? We learn something in one part of the brain and we help it generalize other places. When I was a student, I was taught, you know, study the retina 
because everything we learn about the retina is going to turn out to be true everywhere else, and we can study the retina. Mm -hmm. And it was a kind of mantra of the people who studied the retina, and they did learn a lot of things that did turn out to be true other places. So if we find out that in the cortex that the time scale of firing is, you know, tells us something about the state or something like that, can we apply that? Can we I, I totally, yes, yeah, totally. Like um, these contextual synapses and driving synapses, right? Um, in the cortex, um, that contextual information can be carried through the basal uh, dendrites and driving synapses through the apical dendrite. Um, in the cerebellum, there's something like that happening, right? In percutaneous cells, you will have a system of uh, axons providing contextual information. Um, and another part, uh, of uh, axons that come from the same cells, but they're distributed differently and activated differently, will provide the uh, the extra uh, energy to make the, the cell fire uh, uh, temporally, right? Uh, time locked. So in that sense, maybe the mechanisms are not the same, but um, the in, in, in biophysically, but um, in, from an engineering point of view, they they're similar. Well, we can't make it any happier than that. Well, the interesting thing about the cortex that's different than the cerebellum or the thalamus or the caudate is the is the massive interconnectivity, excitatory right. interconnectivity, and that and that's telling us something. That's telling us that the, the cortex uh, has this to to allow it to to, uh, to uh, have a flexibility that's based on experience and context. Right. Do we see that variety of local circuit inhibition, interneuron varieties anywhere? It's the most diverse in cortex, wouldn't you say, or is that not true? Well, uh, I would have to say that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm only thinking of like the brainstem and hypothalamus with areas I'm not very familiar with, but um, I would say that the cortex has a, a level of, uh, of self Types and connect, especially anatomy that's more com uh, is uh, highly complex. Uh, that uh, maybe is uh, you know special. Yeah. Diversity of interneurons, though. For example, the spinal cord is a master of interneuron diversity, and in fact, it's so so difficult that during the days when people were studying the spinal cord very intensely, that just knowing all the different kinds of interneurons, being able to enumerate them. Was, uh, was almost impossibly difficult. And that's the same situation that we face now and everywhere in the forebrain, where there's this sort of family of interneurons that populates the whole forebrain. And just getting a handle on how many different ones there are and what's different about them and how do you tell one from the other what's the right way to do that is the same challenge that was faced in the spinal cord. We have way better ways of doing it. We have a much better chance of succeeding than they did then. But it's the, I think this could be a, a not something that isn't just a forebrain thing, that diversity of interneurons might be more universal than that. And there might be like secrets, untapped secrets of the brain that, that lie and answer that question, like why are there so many different kinds of interneurons? There's a deep question about the brain. So there is hope. <laughs> and the interneurons are the yeah. are, Help us, interneurons. You're our only help. <laughs> well, thank you, David McCormick. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Perfect.